Welcome to Same Surgeon, Different Life, part of the STS Surgical Hot Topics podcast. This series focuses on demystifying cardiothoracic surgery and presenting the remarkable backstories of surgeons from a variety of backgrounds and in various career stages that have led them to become the face of CT surgery. I'm Dr. David Tom Cook, and in each episode, Dr. Tom Varghese and I will get to know more about our colleagues, the obstacles, the success stories, trade-offs, and pivotal moments that have shaped their careers as well as their personal missions. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. The program will return after a message from our sponsor. I'm Dr. Sandeep Kandar, a thoracic surgeon from Virginia Cancer Specialists, with a message about the importance of referring patients with resectable stage 1B through 3A non-small cell lung cancer to a medical oncologist consistent with national guidelines. I believe that all of these patients should be referred to a medical oncologist early in their treatment pathway. Using biopsy samples taken before or during surgery, medical oncologists should order guideline-recommended molecular testing to help inform therapy decisions. In my opinion, it is important to talk to these patients about recurrence rates after surgery, as well as molecular testing, which may impact treatment decisions for eligible patients. These conversations should happen either before surgery or shortly thereafter. Overall, a multidisciplinary team-based approach may help drive informed decisions so patients can receive the right treatment options for them. This content is sponsored by AstraZeneca. Welcome to another episode of Same Surgeon, Different Light, a podcast brought to you by the Society of Thoracic Surgeons Workforce on Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion. Today, we talk to Dr. Edward P. Chin. Dr. Chin is the Chief of the Division of Cardiovascular and Thoracic Surgery and Professor of Surgery at Duke University. In our conversation, we talk about his world travels growing up, being born in Tokyo, moving to Taiwan, Seattle, Atlanta, and finally Athens, that's Athens, Georgia, not Athens, Greece, where he became a diehard University of Georgia football fan. We talk about his matriculation to Duke University School of Medicine and where he became interested in surgery. His interest led him to University of California in San Francisco, where he found many mentors who advised him to go into cardiothoracic surgery. He has a family where his brother is also a leader in cardiothoracic surgery. And we talk about him coming home to Duke University to lead that storied division of cardiothoracic surgery, and especially leading in a time of the COVID-19 pandemic where he started his position. I hope you enjoy. And welcome to another episode of Same Surgeon, Different Light. Today, we have a really special conversation with Dr. Edward Chin. Dr. Chin is the Chief of the Division of Cardiovascular and Thoracic Surgery of Duke University. In 2021, Dr. Chin returned to Duke after 30 years having attended Duke Medical School. In the announcement of his appointment as Chief of the Historic Duke Cardiothoracic Surgery Program, Dr. Chin was described as, and I quote, an experienced leader who has successfully navigated important local, regional, and national administrative roles. Most importantly, He has exceptional maturity and has developed the reputation for respectful and thoughtful engagement in all of his interactions, truly living our institutional values of respect, teamwork, and ownership. It's my pleasure to bring to you Dr. Edward Chin. Hey, Ed, how are you doing? Great, David. Thank you so much for having me be part of this series. It's certainly a privilege to be here today. 
Thank you very much for you know being part of our podcast. And I know it's been uh, over a year, but congratulations on your your appointment to uh, chief of the division of cardiovascular and thoracic surgery at Duke. No, thank you. You know, it's certainly uh, been a whirlwind year, and it's one of those uh, once in a lifetime opportunities to come back and lead. You know, this uh, iconic institution and this uh, historic division, and uh, I, it's you know, it's extreme privilege and. And, and I look forward to hopefully uh, making a positive impact on the division as a whole and individuals within it during the course of my time here. You know, I, we're taping this uh, still within the confines of the COVID-19 pandemic. And I've asked many people who, everyone who's taped with us, these podcasts, but, you know, how is Duke doing uh, during this pandemic? You know, I think we're uh, doing uh, as well as it, it could, um, as any, well as any institution could, could be doing, quite honestly, I think one thing I've, I've noticed about the, the, the team at Duke, the, the leadership, uh, the staff, the physicians, really the entire institution, it, it's very much a, a can-do institution. I think once they put their mind to, to solving a problem, uh, they just get it done in a, in a proactive collegial manner. And so there, we have the challenges you know, of, of uh, 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 bed constraints, uh, staffing shortages, uh, people being out with COVID, but, but I think everyone sort of rallies and manages to get things done. So uh, no one, uh, you know, it's, it, it's not always easy, but certainly there's no uh, panic button being pushed. And, and even though it's a difficult situation for the entire global society, uh, it, it doesn't feel like we're in any kind of uh, spiraling crisis mode here. You came there in March of 2021. So after the pandemic was sort of up and roaring, what were some of the challenges of coming to a, a large division as a leader in the middle of, of a crisis? You know, I think the, the institution as a whole, the individual faculty members have been very welcoming to me. And that was very clear uh, during the interview process. So I was excited to come back uh, to Duke and be part of this place because I, I remember uh, being a student and, and obviously admiring uh, you know, the legacy of the institution, the, 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 the trainees and, and many of the faculty uh, and were people I looked up to uh, who, were, who, you know, were, gave me mentorship guidance uh, during my, uh, you know, time as a learner. So I, I've always been very grateful for that. I think that, you know, the challenges are, are probably the challenges we all face uh, as a global society. You know, the lack of human interaction, the, the Zoom video calls, uh, although it's been really nice to to, to meet people and, and have a, an avenue for, to, to get work done. Uh, I think uh, it, for me, the, the building of individual relationships, shaking a hand, seeing someone in the eye, just being in other uh, person's presence is, has been tough and, and not being able to meet quite honestly as many of the team as, as I would like. It, it's very interesting, David, <laughs> there's a funny story. There was, um, uh, you know, I was walking down the hall, I think in my third or fourth month here, and then someone said hello to me. And of course, in this position, a lot of people know you, and, and I don't necessarily know everyone, but this person said, you know, hey, Ed, and, and I, you know, I said, oh, nice to meet you. And I said, who are you? And it, it turns out it was a high-ranking hospital executive. <laughs> I, I don't think I'll name the position or the name, but let's just say this person was way up the, the, the leadership um, ladder here at Duke. Yeah. And, and this kind of, it just sort of illustrates the, 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 the challenges that we all face now, uh, you know, in, in healthcare, really around the world. And so that, that's probably been the, the main thing, uh, you know, for me in terms of uh, trying to uh, fit into the team here and, 
and, and establish myself as a, as a member of the Duke community. You know, it's kind of interesting. You know, we communicate with so many people on email uh, and Zoom, even when uh, the cameras are, are off in Zoom uh, and um, you're traveling to the hospital and someone's staring at you in the elevator and it comes to realize that that you've interacted so many times on Zoom, they're just surprised to finally see your face. Absolutely. And, and you know, being new to the institution, uh, some people have been uh, much taller than I expected, others shorter. <laughs> and, and even several of my faculty uh, members who are uh, in the division, uh, you know, I didn't realize how tall they were until I met them. And, you know, because of, of, the, of the nature of life in the, in the pandemic, I, we've only seen these shows just a handful of times. So, but I, I think that, that hopefully as, uh, as um, you know, this goes on, that we can emerge from this, um, you know, in, in a good place here soon. Yeah. Great. So we'll talk a little bit about sort of your path. And I, I think your story is, is, is very fascinating because you have, you have a, a couple of phases in your early phase. Uh, you sort of traveled the world, so to speak, and, and um, at stops in, in, in Japan, Taiwan, Seattle, Georgia. Uh, you consider Athens, uh, Georgia, your hometown. So congratulations on the oh, football national championship. Um, and, but then you also have long epochs of stability being at Emory um, for so many, so many years. And then you've come to Duke. We'll get sort of to your origin story, but you know, you were at Emory for many, many years and presumably became extremely accustomed to the cultural and nuances of Emory University. And then you come to Duke, which is a historic program with its own culture and nuance. And although you went there for medical school, what has been the challenges of sort of learning the culture of Duke? And what has been some of your strategies to sort of acclimate you to that culture and navigate it effectively? Well, I think you're absolutely right. Every place has a, a sort of different vibe, a different culture. I think that um, one of the things that helped me uh, in transitioning here was understanding the, the, the tradition and the legacy of Duke and the institution, and particularly the Department of Surgery and Division of Cardiovascular Surgery, the Cardiovascular and Thoracic Surgery, where you know, there's a tremendous amount of pride uh, in, in the academic legacy of the graduates and, and the current faculty. And I think that was very helpful in, in knowing that this place was steeped in tradition, uh, but also knowing that it's an institution that, that embraces, that has over the last uh, decades, couple of decades, you know, embracing diversity, um, inclusion, equity, uh, these types of important changes that, are, that we in society are, are, are going through now. And, and I think for me, it was really just, um, I, I, I think that it was important for me really just to be a part of the team. And, and fit in. And so I, I came here with, with the goal that I was going to be, um, I was going to fit into them, not vice versa. And I was going to listen um, to, to the, the faculty, the residents, you know, the staff, just learn as much as I could uh, about the place uh, with as little implicit bias about my previous experiences there as possible. Uh, trying not to ever really make comparisons um, to where I had been before, knowing that that's always human nature uh, to do so. But, but, but more importantly, in thinking about my time at Emory, drawing on all the positive and negative, uh, negative examples of what I'd been through 
you know, there and to, to you know, use those uh, to, to become a better, to be the best uh, leader I could be for, for the team here at Duke. Great. Now, you were born in Tokyo, Japan, moved to Seattle, and then settled in Athens, Georgia. Tell me about that experience being a world traveler and then settling in the, the heart of the South. Well, so my, uh, my uh, parents are Taiwanese American immigrants. Uh, my, my mom and dad were in graduate school at Tokyo University when I was born. And so although my ethnic heritage is Taiwanese, I was born in, in Tokyo. And so I've always felt a real closeness to, to that country for obvious reasons. Um, you know, they finished up school uh, after I was about eight months old. I only lived there for about eight months. My, my father then got a, a postdoc fellowship at Yale, in which he only intended to stay in the United States for a year. So they actually sent me back to Taiwan to live with my grand uh, grandparent, maternal grandparents and, and uh, you know, aunt, a couple of aunts. And so my parents lived in New Haven, Connecticut for a year while I was in Taiwan. Ultimately, he got a job with Georgia Pacific and was going to be in Seattle. So they had a family friend fly me to, to meet them uh, somewhere in the U.S. And, and then we, we drove to Seattle where he, we lived for about three years where my brother was born. And then he eventually got transferred uh, from Seattle to Atlanta, you know, obviously Georgia Pacific. And, and then we lived in Atlanta for about three years. And then ultimately one of his former colleagues had taken a job at University of Georgia. And there was an opening and asked if he wanted to join the, the faculty and staff. So he did. So we moved to Athens when I was six right before first grade and eventually I completed my secondary schooling there first through 12th grade so that that's kind of how I ended up what I did you know my first memory as a conscious uh, human being was I think in Atlanta to be honest maybe a four or five year old yeah and certainly uh, in Athens as well um, and so I think that it was it was uh, you know a good experience uh, a broad experience uh, and I think it you know probably because the there was as much Asian culture, the, the, the Asian population was not as dense as you might see in a large metropolitan area in the California, the East Coast. Uh, you know, we, we could assimilate uh, in, in, into American society better. My mom was an English teacher, and so she had studied some American culture. And, and I, think they, I think those experiences allowed me to, to kind of fit in maybe better than, than what I've observed, you know, from time to time in, in, with other kids. So. You know, having hosting this podcast, that story is a common theme of of parents coming to United States for educational opportunities and early job career opportunities, thinking that it's temporary. Kids perhaps staying behind with with the extended family structure, and then ultimately coming back to the United States reunited with their parents. What? That sort of narrative and being away from your parents, how has it shaped your sort of view and how you approach your life? You know, I don't really have much memory of that year. I have no memory of being in Taiwan or Japan as a baby. Uh, I, I, you know, it, it, there's absolutely no memory of that at all. Apparently, my first language was Taiwanese, and I still I can't speak it very fluently, but I can understand every common everyday language. Uh, and certainly we've made trips back to Taiwan. You know, I, I think for me, um, it, it didn't, it, what it really um, made me, um, it, it really gave me a lot of empathy uh, toward the foreign immigrant, 
of no matter where country they came from. I always admire, like, uh, you know, over the last 20 years, I've interviewed several applicants in CT surgery, and, and I really admire the ones that came over when they were in their teenage years or, or even in their 20s. I, I just feel like those people are extremely courageous to do that. Because I, I, I remember going back to Taiwan during the summers with my uh, brother and, and parents, and, and I, I just remember hating it for a period of time. Like the first week or two, we just... It was just a tough adjustment period. I, you know, I was an Americanized kid growing up in Athens and then going back to a different culture. You know, I just did not appreciate it uh, as I do as an adult. And so for me, um, I just really admire people that, that, that have, again, the courage to do that, to speak with an accent, you know, to, to give it. Because, you know, I, I know for myself, even when I uh, sometimes, uh, like I remember when I was a kid, I, my cousins or other people make fun of me for trying to speak in the a, a Taiwanese or Chinese dialect. So I, that, that was probably a fear that, 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 has, that still exists in me today. And, and I just think it's very courageous for people to speak in, in an accent uh, and, and live in a different society. And, and I think the other thing that it shaped me is, is that I think it, it allows me to appreciate the global society that we live in. And so I did travel a lot as a kid, not on my own accord, but one of the things I really enjoy doing is traveling to other societies, uh, you know, Europe or Japan, not been to Africa or South America. I've been to the Arctic, would, would you know, hope to do that, all these things one day. Obviously, COVID put a stop to all those things. But, but, but you know, that's, those are things I really enjoy. And it's not, you know, quite honestly, when I go to these places, I don't even have to go to a museum. I'm happy just to walk through a neighborhood, a, a shopping mall a grocery store, just to see and feel what it's like to live in that country. Those are the things I really enjoy. So I think it's allowed me to appreciate uh, and, and not be sort of uh, centric to one type of society or culture, um, but just to really appreciate everything that all parts of the world have to offer. Those, uh, what you say carries a lot of weight. I remember I was a uh, resident researcher in the laboratory of Dr. Um, Bobby Robbins, and um, we had a, a, a Japanese postdoc in our lab and he was presenting some data in anticipation of presenting that data as an abstract in a, at a meeting. And I commented that we probably need to work with his delivery of his, of his uh, talk, uh, given his uh, ac accent and the command of the English language. And Dr. Robin said to me, well, imagine yourself going to Japan and um, presenting your data in Japanese, you know, how, how easy would that be? And so that, allowed me to understand that perspective of the the challenge and the courage to to come to a, a different country and do research and, and present that data in that that language of that country absolutely you know and the other thing too david is that that you know we we have international fellows who from japan from germany and they come and work in a, in a clinical environment and you know typically we hold them to a standard that we might hold our own uh, trainees who, who were raised in the United States. And I think that that also takes a tremendous amount of courage. And I know I've worked with many fellows, um, you know, from Japan and other parts of the world. And, and, and you know, there's, it's not always been easy uh, for them, but, but certainly I've always appreciated the courage they had to do so and, and the work they put in to care for patients. And uh, it's just, uh, you know, it's a, it's a special human, human being, I think, to kind of uh, to take that, uh, that kind of adventure and challenge on. So. Well, uh, you mentioned uh, coming to a new place, uh, speaking with an accent. We're going to uh, talk a little bit about uh, about you going to a place speaking with a southern accent in 
the San Francisco uh, UCSF environment. Um, but uh, you start off uh, in medical school at Duke. Um, what motivated you to go into surgery? You know, I think that um, somehow I think surgery was something that, that I remember as a, as a 11 or 12 year old, there was a special TV special on the, it was called the body human. And, and, and I remember seeing those, they focused on one with maybe in the neural, the, the, the neurologic system. And one was on the circulatory system. And it's really the circulatory system, one that sort of where uh, I, the bug bit me, you know, I was just fascinated with the heart beating. And, and ultimately I, I think that's just always stuck with me. I mean, when you're 11 or 12, you don't really know how good you're going to be. Obviously, you know, nothing about the field. Obviously, that was 1978. The field was evolving, but it, I think ultimately, I I think when I my, my pursuit of medical career and, and you know typical Asian parents they they value education and being a physician and, and certainly mine were no different. Uh, they certainly didn't pressure me. Uh, I can honestly say I we did that all on our own accord. But the pursuit of medicine I think always involved going into surgery and even cardiac surgery. One of my good college friends. He, he remembers, and I, which I don't, during freshman orientation, my talking to him about being a cardiac surgeon. So I just think it was something about the, the heart beating and the fact it was moving, I think, that always sort of fascinated me, I think. So. And then after Duke, you went to, uh, as I mentioned, UCSF. Uh, UCSF is one of the oldest surgical programs west of the Mississippi, with steeped in tradition, both new and old, with uh, Hallie DeBoss there and Nancy Asher. What was that transition going from the Southern programs like Duke to UCSF, uh, sort of a Western program? You know, I, I think that, um, uh, you know, of, of course, as a, as a Duke medical student, I, and I wasn't the best medical student. I just, I just want to put that out there. I wasn't, you know, AOA or at the very top of the class. I, I felt like I worked hard. I probably did better during my fourth year of uh, rotations as opposed to my core rotations. Cause I, I think I was just a person that just didn't quite know how to handle those situations. And, and, but one thing about, um, uh, you know, I think, but unfortunately by the time I was in my fourth year, I was, I was, I felt like I was doing a pretty good job with everything. Uh, you know, I, I implied there because I, it was on the list of places to apply, but, but when I went out there, it felt very comfortable. Uh, you know, I'd been to Stanford, so I knew the Bay Area. I wasn't necessarily intending to go back there, uh, but but I really um, uh, just was struck by it, it. Just had a good feel, and I don't really know how to explain that. But the, I think the other thing that was really appealing to me is that you know there were people out there that looked like me, and I think at the time in Durham, uh, the surgical program was maybe not as diverse as it is today, and and I think for me that, you know, I, and I don't remember thinking about that consciously, but I, looking back at it, I do remember, um, you know, probably that being a, an appealing factor for me. So uh, I, I wanted to go there and I, I was fortunate, you know, to, to match in, into that program initially. And, and you know, I, I want to say one thing too, for all the people out there, David, that are learning that I didn't, I didn't actually match into the categorical program initially, I matched into a preliminary spot, you know, and, 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 um, and, you know, just with hard work and, and, thing, and support, I was able to get a categorical, categorical position. And many people in this world don't know that. The whole world now knows, of course, with this podcast. But that was just something. And I'm saying that just for the people out there who sometimes may stumble along the way. I think it's important that, that we, that, you know, th these paths that we go through to get 
to have career success aren't always easy. But but the key is just to, to really never give up, and especially if you're if you feel, if something feels right. But but UCSF represented a place to me so I, uh, that that was that had high academic um, uh, uh, values, just like Duke, but but in a different culture, and, and it was a slight adjustment, obviously. But fortunately, I, I was able to be successful in, in the end. And you know, I, I think that we talk a lot about diversity in surgery now, the importance of diversity and inclusion, equity. I've known about diversity for 30 years in surgery because of my time at UCSF. So I, I just have always, um, you know, been very grateful uh, uh, to, for that place. You know, it's interesting. Um, we talk about going from point A to point B. And so that emphasis from the beginning to where we are now suggests that, you know, we create a, a path we follow that path and we get there, but, you know, that path can have setbacks uh, and it can have challenges and how successful you are after you get to point B oftentimes depends on the ability to face challenges and setbacks and to develop the skill sets to navigate those challenges. I think so. I, I think that I, I, there's probably not a career out there that didn't have a setback or a challenge. Uh, and I think how we respond to those, uh, is, you know, says a lot about a person. And that's sort of the things I try to impart on my kids, you know, when they sort of get a grade in school they're not happy with or so they don't get chosen for something. It's, it's and it's, it's you know, it's, it's, it's typically what, how you respond to the to the difficult times. It really, truly makes, defines, you know, what kind of person you, you, you're going to be or what kind of career you're going to have. And, and, you know, I just think that you, we should learn from those and, and, and the path may not always be clear, may not be what you want, but I remember when Steve Jobs gave a 2005 um, commencement address at Stanford, you know, as, as an alumni to the undergraduate campus, I, you know, I was able to see that. And he always talks about connecting the dots uh, backwards or in retrospect. And I think that's certainly uh, for me, a very true statement where sometimes it, it didn't feel great, <laughs> Uh, you know, going forward, like I was mentioning, the not necessarily matching the categorical program, but but it, it all kind of worked out in, in retrospect. And it, I think I was I'm a better physician and um, surgeon and person because I was able to have you know those different experiences. You know, so who who were some of the mentors at UCSF, and how did they help you make the decision of cardiothoracic surgery? You know, I think that uh, the the general surgery uh, program really dominated UCSF really well, and and uh, and I think the cardiac program was a little smaller than it is today, but there were several people that that you know there. I think that you know there's so many academic leaders there, and, and uh, who took an interest in me. You know, I think of Scott Adzik. He's he eventually became pediatric surgeon, went on to be chief at, at CHOP. Um, you know, there's um, uh, Sean Mulvihill, who's who's a, you know, a upper GI uh, surgical oncologist uh, and, um, you know, Alan Sipperstein, who, who was an endocrine surgeon. Um, there was uh, Robert Lim, Bill Schechter was a trauma surgeon. There was Orlo Clark, who was an endocrine surgeon. So many people took an interest in me just because I was a trainee, didn't care that I was going into cardiac. I just really wanted to develop you as an academic surgeon. Frank Hanley was division chief there at the time. And really took an interest in me. And, and, you know, and Linda Riley was a vascular surgeon that was our program director and, you know, just a, a person that, that was no nonsense, but cared very deeply 
about the residency and and the residents, not just as surgeons, but as people. And and you know that and and it, you know it's not just that it it's the residents I work with. I kind of you know, that's a place that you just the, the people above you you just so, so admired many of them, many of whom are on faculty now. I mean, we talked earlier in the conversation. Your chair, Diana Farmer, was inspirational. Jerry Doherty. Uh, you know, there's uh, Rio Hirose is a transplanter. All these people, uh, Mika Varma, you know, Jay Hiramoto. These are so many people that that were above me that aren't even cardiac surgeons that I still have close relationships with because I just admire them so much. And we we were in the trenches together. We grew up together. You know, my own class is Kelly Bullard. Um, you know, not many people in my class uh, want to do cardiac, but but the, and there was just so many. Th th that's a UCSF was unique in that we bonded so well in our uh, love of surgery and UCSF and, and really just respect for each other, quite honestly. And, you know, we'll talk a little bit more because you mentioned earlier that your leadership style is grounded in how you were treated as a trainee and, and how you've come full circle in uh, developing that style to, to support trainees. But uh, why cardiothoracic surgery? How, how did we get you into the fold? You know, I, I think it was just, again, that fascination with the heart and, and, and it just sort of never left me. You know, I, I remember in medical school, uh, you know, the, at the time surgery was, you know, the, the residents were working really hard. There was, there was no workout restrictions or any of those things. Those, there's no uh, mind to, no one paid attention to mental wellness or any of those things. And, and it just, but it always stuck with me. And, and I remember as a student, I was looking for other options uh, to try to, because I was thinking about the lifestyle and those types of things. And, but I, I just could not do it. And he, he, even I remember my intern year, there was a period of time where, you know, adjusting the UCSF, you know, suddenly, you know, kind of being on the wards and far away from the East coast, you know, new resident, uh, I, I was pretty down for, you know, a few months and, but I, I just kind of kept going and, and I thought about sw switching to something else, but something in me told me, don't do it. And then I think suddenly in, in spring of, of my intern year, I, everything just clicked. It, everything just kind of fell into place and I never looked back. And, but I do remember being on those rotations. I just was always enjoyed the rotations, you know, enjoyed taking care of the patients, enjoyed the critical care, the interactions with, with patients. And then just love seeing the, the, the anatomy and the technical details of the operation. So I think CT surgery for me is, is satisfies many professional uh, things. Uh, it, it's gratifying on so many levels, you know, as I was just mentioning, you know, the, the technical details, of surgery, the, the anatomy, the, the ability to connect with people uh, on a human level, the critical care we have to um, use to get people through successfully, and then the medicine we have to know on top of that. So it, 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 it in many levels, it has been, a, you know, really a gratifying career. So eventually you left the fog of ECSF and San Francisco and went back to the humidity of Atlanta, Georgia, and where you stayed on the faculty for 17 years at Emory. How did you, what, what was your role when you arrived at Emory? And how did your sort of clinical uh, academic niche evolve over almost two decades? Well, I, you know, that's where I matched for cardiac surgery. Um, I was looking for a, a you know, a, a place that focused on adult cardiac surgery. I think I felt like that was going to be an area that I was going to enjoy. And so I was fortunate enough to have done a good enough job. They asked me to stay on faculty. Uh, you know, Dr. Guyton asked me, 
if I wanted to focus on aortic surgery in the time, uh, there was no person doing that. It, the, the field was still a little, maybe not quite infancy, but maybe adolescence, you know, if you will, it was still, in, it, it wasn't the, the field it is today. And, and so I, I decided, uh, you know, at the time there, the, the job market wasn't that great, but I still, I knew I wanted to do academics and, you know, it was a thrill to be asked to, to stay on faculty, the place you train. So it was a real privilege to do so. And I spent extra time in Houston with Dr. Safi and Tony Estrella at UT Houston, Herman Hospital, learning how to do aortic surgery. So I'm, you know, very grateful to them. And so I came back as an adult cardiac surgeon with a focus on aortic surgery. And, and it was, you know, to essentially build the, 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 the program there. You know, the, the volume in cardiac surgery at that time at Emory Hospital was, was, had been dwindling over years because of, of, you know, community practices being set up. Uh, you, you know, the referral patterns were drying up and I was a little bit worried about it, quite honestly. I, I remember having discussion with Dr. Guyton being worried that, that, that whether I was going to be successful because, you know, I didn't hunt or fish. I remember saying those exact things. <laughs> and so, but, you know, I think I had a, 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 a unique uh, skill set, something that had not been there. And I think with, with hard work, humility, caring about the patient, I just sort of grew in that, in that arena. I knew that I, I wanted to pursue the academic mission. I think that goes back to my medical school days. And, and, and I think one of the things I did not really anticipate that I that involved was just really the, 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 the enjoyment of, of teaching and, and working with the residents, being engaged in the education program. I, I know that at the time I was loyal to the program because I was one of their products and really wanted to make a good experience for the residents. And it's just something that came naturally. And, and so that's kind of how it all evolved, you know, in a, in a nutshell there. When you say uh, you didn't hunt and fish, uh, was that literally or figuratively? Um, you know, I do enjoy I, my. So my dad does own about a hundred acres uh, outside of Athens, and 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 we. I went there a couple of times with him to go deer hunting. You know, it's interesting at the University of Georgia. He was in the School of Forest Resources, so had they had a big cooler where they stored all their, their chemicals and supplies and things. And during the winter, you'd see all these deer uh, carcasses kind of being cured in there. And I went a few times and just didn't really enjoy that part of it but I, I did enjoy fishing as a kid I, probably one thing I've never not cultivated as much as a as a as a um as an adult but but you know I just I guess I was referring to the fact that I was, it was an Asian male in, in in the southeast and and in the you know cardiology network that did not have a lot of Asian cardiac surgeons and so I was just worried about that and it, it turned out to be completely unfounded because I, I think you know the, the Emory faculty in the cardiology group is a fabulous group and they didn't care about that they just wanted someone that would care about the patient and and do a good do right by the patient and 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 you know fortunately i was um, my fears were, were totally unfounded yeah. now uh, you had mentioned that in the last few years at emory you uh began to explore leadership positions as a way for ongoing professional growth uh so tell me a little bit about when did you decide to take on more leadership responsibility and what did you do to prepare yourself uh, for those type of roles? You, you know, I think as we sort of grow as, as, as academic surgeons, um, uh, you know, and we get comfortable with the things that we were trained to do uh, during residency, taking care of patients, hopefully teaching, doing research, uh, you, you know, we, we look for opportunities to, to grow as a professional. And I think leadership was that I think if, you know, as you can imagine, in any division, 
Uh, there's things that need to be done that do not involve necessarily academic mission, you know, interaction with hospital leadership, uh, quality initiatives, things of that nature. Uh, I started getting involved in some of those things slowly at the, at the request of, of, of our, um, you know, division leadership, and then asked to have more of a prominent role in, in the education program. And then just was asked to participate in other quality initiatives, you know, whether it's involved the hospital itself, the heart center, uh, you know, just a variety of those types of things. And enjoy that. And at the same time, I was becoming more involved in, in our society, um, you know, in, in task force, workforce committees and things, and enjoy those types of interactions, knowing that that work is extremely important. And I don't think there was ever a moment where a light bulb just sort of turned on in me where I thought I'd want to take another step in, in these types of positions. But I, I think that as you, um, as I continue to do those things and enjoy that, uh, you know, the, 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 next, the next natural step is to look for such, such opportunities. And as those opportunities came up, I, I would, you know, apply for those and, and, and um, uh, explore those, uh, you know, in, in greater depth. You know, just like the Harbaugh's, Jim and John, who are head coaches, both at one time head coaches in the NFL, your brother is also a cardiothoracic division chief, uh, Fred, at Tufts Medical Center in Boston. Do you all exchange notes and uh, compare strategy and vision? You know, we don't necessarily compare vision. Uh, we try not to necessarily talk shop a lot just because, you know, sometimes it, there's other things to, to focus on. But but I, I, he's obviously been always very supportive. You know, we, we we probably have a slightly unusual relationship as siblings. We we never there was no envy ever in in our careers, no competition. We we're just kind of happy when, when each of us could achieve uh, things in, in our professional lives and as as students. Uh, I, you know, he's sort of I, I feel like he's uh, you know naturally uh, uh, suited to this type of work, and so I certainly sought his opinion out. On, on, you know, being in a new place and, and navigating, you know, you know uh, these types of situations that arise. And, and, and so he, it's, been, it's been nice to kind of talk to him about these things and, and get his input, uh, you know, on, on sort of certain issues that, that come up from time to time. You know, there, there seems to be sort of a, a renaissance of uh, Asian American and Pacific Islanders in uh, cardiothoracic leadership positions. We, uh, we talk about you and your, and your brother, Fred. Uh, Gorov Alawandi is uh, department chair at University of Michigan. Uh, Anthony Kim, division chief at USC. Tom Braggese, Cancer Center Leadership at Utah. Sunil Sengal, uh, division chief at, at Penn. Sherry Erkman, program director at Temple. And uh, Asian American specific authors are not underrepresented in medicine per se, but they are underrepresented in executive leadership. Uh, some people call it, call it the bamboo ceiling, so to speak, to, as a take on sort of the, the glass ceiling. Asian Americans, you know, in a grander scale nationally, Asian Americans make only 2.6% of, of corporate leadership of Fortune 500 companies and less than 1% of uh, S&P 500 CEOs. If we look at Silicon Valley, about 30% of the tech workforce in Silicon Valley is Asian American, but only 15% of senior management and tech companies are uh, Asian American. What views, what do you see? Is there a bamboo ceiling in, in healthcare? And 
what can we do to sort of mitigate that ceiling if it does exist? Well, you know, Dave, I, I think I remember being when I was looking at um, some of these uh, leadership positions, I, I was someone quoted me that, like you said, we're not necessarily Asian Americans aren't underrepresented in the healthcare workforce. May someone said 20 percent of the physicians, but like it's and then for executive leadership, two percent. So, you know, I'm, I'm very proud of the fact that I was chosen and very grateful for this and this opportunity. And I can't tell you how many um, residents and, and other faculty around the country have been appreciative of that I can be chosen as someone who they can, you know, look up to and, and use as inspiration. You know, there are a lot of reasons for, you know, these, obviously we, we talk about glass ceilings, bamboo ceilings. I, I think, you know, there's probably a lot of things in society that we can improve upon, uh, you know, that, that obviously are beyond the scope of, of this lecture. I think all we can do as people is to, is to make people aware of the discrepancies that that may exist, and so the hope that we can end up in in a better world. Quite honestly, I think for my part uh, in this role, uh, I, I don't want to necessarily look back and complain about what's happened. All I want to do is support people, um, all learners. Quite honestly, not just at Duke, but all institutions, uh, you know, who are looking to grow their careers and be successful and, and potentially interested in these these positions. But but I, I think. Uh, I'm, I'm very, you know, the pandemic has caused a, a, a lot of problems for, for us as a world, but it's also brought to, uh, to attention, brought to the world's attention, many of the disparities that, that exist in, in multiple facets of life. And I think that it's important not to lose sight of that and to, you know, just to work as a society to, to try to make things better for, for all of us in, in this, on this planet. So, I, you know, I, I, I view myself as, I, I'm not aware. I'm not oblivious to the fact that, that this is uh, that it's not, not only is it uh, that I have a, a huge uh, role in supporting the faculty and division here, but also being a person that, that others may aspire to, to uh, whose careers they may want to emulate one day. And, and you know, I think it's a it's a, it's a privilege, you know, to be honest, it's a privilege. So. You talk about the, the privilege of being part of a sort of a global society of that's that's steeped in civility. When asked what is your greatest professional achievement, you mentioned your ability to restore health as a cardiac surgeon and to make a positive impact in the lives and many meaningful lives of patients, uh, many of whom you're still in touch with, and quite a bit, you know, tens of whom are colleagues of yours or family members or nursing teams, CAF, Echotechs, things like that perfusionists, all of whom you've worked with to restore health. You know, just talk a little bit about that sort of responsibility and that joy that you derive from being a cardiac surgeon. You know, I think that I always wanted my career to be based on caring for the patient first, being a good doctor first. My wife reminds me a lot that I always wanted to be a kind of physician where a family member would want me to someone that would want me to take care of their family and so it, it has always been a privilege when i get asked by people whom i interact with and work with uh in the hospital to, to take care of someone that they care deeply about um and and so that that was for me uh, you know validation that i did it the way i wanted to do it you know by being a physician first no matter what else i did in this world and within the field of ct surgery it, 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 I know for a fact that it was going to be based on being, I'm, I was a 
doctor first and foremost. So that that means a lot to me. And, and I think that, you know, I think there's times in medicine we we, you know, healthcare is challenging these days. We 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 all know what the challenges are. But 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 when a patient is grateful to you because you've made their life better, and it's not just the patient whose life you're impacting. When when a patient has a positive or negative outcome, you're impacting a whole village of people. You know, we're talking about you know family members, friends, colleagues. It's not just the one person that that is impacted. It's a tremendous. It's a whole group of people. You know, it it just it just feels great. Uh, you know, and I know there's many times where I've probably been frustrated because uh, something, uh, you know, bureaucratic bureaucracy in the hospital, uh, you know, a staffing shortage, this or that. But then when a patient expresses gratitude to you, that just sort of makes you that makes you realize, well, that's why we're here. And that, that's that's probably what keeps me going, quite honestly. So it just it's something that means a lot. And I think the next thing that means a lot is, is, is that you mentioned is that, you know, just helping people in their careers and having a successful career. I, I think there have been many times over the last 15 years that, that a, a resident has texted me saying they did some case is uh, arch or root or redo or something that, that they just want to appreciate all the time they spent with me to learn how to do that case and make an impact in the local community. And so that always means a lot to kind of receive those messages. Because really, if, if we don't take care of patients and, and train the next generation, then what, what are we doing? So that, that, that for me, that that's what it's all about. Yeah, yeah. fundamentally, what are we doing if we're not helping? That's right. right? That's exactly right. Uh, if you're not helping, why did you? Why would why would one enter this this profession? Right. And be there a cardiac thoracic surgeon. There are a lot of other easier things to do, um, you know. And and so, uh, uh, in, in any event, yeah, that's 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 why that's what keeps me going. And I think for me, in a year of transition. Um, you know, the, the, the times over the last 13 months at Duke where I've, I've felt the best is when I know I'm helping somebody, you know, whether it's a faculty member, a program, a resident, that, that's just, that's when I feel like, yeah, I, I, this is great. And, and, you know, it makes everything else, it makes all the challenges of transitions and, and, and other things, you know, totally worthwhile. Where is cardiothoracic surgery going from your perspective? What's the future of our specialty? Well, I, I think it's. I think we're thriving as a field. Uh, I think it's. Um, I, I think we we certainly there's challenges in, in healthcare um, now, but but I think that we, uh, in we, you know we're dealing with more complex patients. Uh, that the the healthcare is complex. The training paradigms are changing. Resources are constrained. All of these are further accentuated by the pandemic. I think we just have to be resilient. I think we can get there. I think ultimately. Uh, uh, we're headed to a place where we're going to work uh, collaboratively. We should work collaboratively with uh, across the healthcare system with other specialties, you know, focused on diseases, focused on teams, uh, obviously focused on the patient and, and, you know, not necessarily uh, holding on to, uh, uh, to completely traditional therapies, but embracing innovation, uh, really um, motivating the next generation of learners and, and, and really um, inspiring our, our young people who want to do the field to really attract the brightest and the best. And I think if we do those things, then, then I, I, I know our specialty will continue to thrive, you know, in the future. Well, Ed, uh, you said it's a privilege to take care of patients and to train the next generation of cardiothoracic surgeons. And it's been a privilege talking with you today on Same Surgeon, Different Light. Uh, thank you very much. Thanks, David. It's really been a pleasure to talk to you and Really congratulate.
congratulations to you and the STS team for putting on this series. It's really, I think it's just um, absolutely fabulous. So thank you. Well, great. Dr. Edward Chin, Chief of the Division of Cardiovascular and Thoracic Surgery at Duke University. Take care. Thank you. This has been Same Surgeon, Different Life, a podcast brought to you by the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, please rate it five stars and let your friends, trainees, and colleagues know about it. On social media, you can use the hashtag, the face of CT surgery. More information about the Society of Thoracic Surgeons is available online at sts.org.